You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 34 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. If you have clients involved in research and development, the R&D Tax Incentive will give them a leg up. It might even save them from insolvency. But to point our clients in the right direction, we need to understand what the R&D Tax Incentive is about. Kevin O'Hara of TechWitty in Sydney is an expert in this area and kindly agreed to help us. My first question to Kevin is, what is the R&D Tax Incentive? Here's Kevin. The R&D Tax Incentive is an Australian government scheme that, that's really been developed to assist Australian businesses that are, that are innovating, so to speak. So when a business is undertaking what they consider to be technical research and development, then the Australian government through Oz Industry and the Australian Tax Office will actually refund up to 43.5% of all eligible research and development related expenses. And when you say technical, it's not just technology, it's also chemical or biology or anything in the area of science, technology, IT. That's right. So when I say technical, I mean it needs to actually be the, the development of new knowledge. So it do, it's, it's industry agnostic. It really does not matter what industry you're in. If you're basically undertaking research in order to develop a new product, service, type of drug, technology, software, it doesn't matter what it is. Robotics. That's exactly right. The way we like to say it is if you actually have to stop along the process of whatever it is that you're doing and say, how do I? And when you say, how do I do this? How do I create a drone that flies people around the world? Well, first thing you're going to do is you're going to stop and do a desktop study and have a look at what it already exists. And if then there's no existing IP that you could leverage into your project... Intellectual property. That's right. Um, then you're going to have to develop it yourself. And that process basically is where you start off with an unknown outcome. You don't know whether you're going to be able to build that drone that flies people around the world. So that is, by definition, that is starting a project with an undefined outcome. The outcome cannot be known at the beginning of the project. And that is what we consider to be actually the sort of the, the genesis of a core research and development activity. The bar is actually quite high. For example, Uber or Airbnb probably wouldn't qualify because the app they build, anybody could build with the relevant software knowledge. Their innovation is more in the way it is marketed and not so much on the technical side. So Uber and Airbnb, for example, probably wouldn't qualify. Look, Quite right. I think certainly Uber and Airbnb would qualify for components of the project, but you've, you've hit the nail on the head. The bar is high and there's, you have to be very specific about what is research and development. So if we use Uber as an example, if you can go and engage a Java developer to come into the office and code an app, that Java developer went to uni and learned how to code in Java. So they are specialists in their field. Now, if they're brought into the business and then they are given the task of coding an app, 
they're writing, you know, 30, 40,000 lines of code. They're coding out the app. They do that for a living. So that's not new. So the app does not constitute a core activity because that's, there's nothing new there. They, they learned how to code in Java. They know that. But along the way, they might get to a point, say, with Uber, whereby they want to be able to geolocate an individual at their home and then allow that individual the ability to select whether they want a babysit or not. Now, that challenge is a technical challenge that hasn't been done. So within that piece, they would then stop. And in software development land, it's what's called a scrum. They would have a scrum and everybody huddles together and works out, okay, how are we going to do this? And then they're going to, they're going to trial different types of ways of, of working around that problem. That little piece where they have the developer's logs as to they hit that problem, they had to work through that problem, that little piece, that, that's a project. That's a research and development project. Now, technically then, the, once they work out how they're going to do that, now, I guess just selecting a baby's chair is probably not uh, a good example. but It's already out there. That's right. But, but you see, within uh, a project, so looking at Airbnb, the same could be said. You, you can't claim the research and development tax incentive for coding or for just building the app itself. But within that, they might want to develop an algorithm that, for example, is able to predict what type of home you might like to stay in based on your transaction preferences, where you shop, the types of information that they're able to get off the internet. In developing out that algorithm and that sort of special function, that component, which is only a small component, but that piece would constitute a a research and development tax uh, activity. Think about when we design a, a new type of refining process for a coal mine. Now, if you're going to assemble a plant utilizing existing technology, package that up, and then put that into a coal mine, that's not research and development. It doesn't, it's nothing new. You're just assembling components of another thing, putting them together and making them, you know, it's a, almost a commercial innovation as opposed to technical innovation. However, if you were doing really clear sampling and testing of a type of machinery within that. So maybe it's the the offtake gases or, you know, cooling down different types of things or biosequestration of carbon in soil, those, you know, working out how you're going to extract the, the nasties from the uh, power station, you know, and inject that into bedrock. That piece of the project, that's technical research and development because you actually have to start the process. You ha- By definition, it says you must take a project from inception to completion utilising a, a scientific methodology. So it, it runs through from experimentation, putting together a methodology, p- creating a hypothesis, going through to you know observing the results of that. And at the end, you don't know what the results are going to be. But then you look at those results and you might then go back and start again and again and ultimately you will get to an outcome. So that is the first component of what a core activity is. The second is it must have an unknown outcome. 
right, which I think we've touched on already. The third is it ultimately needs to be classified as an, as an eligible activity. So a lot of people talk to us about wanting to claim the R&D tax incentive because they have done um, optimization of a particular product. Optimization in, in actual fact doesn't constitute a research and development tax, uh, an eligible activity, right? Because think about you might launch a social media campaign on your website, marketing your, your website. And then you get, you pay $20,000 to Facebook and lo and behold, they, um, they come back and you get a hundred clicks. For your, for your 20 grand, it's probably a bit skewed, like 10,000 clicks, right? But once you've got those 10,000 clicks and then you go back and you change the ad and then you improve the optimization and then you change the ad again and you improve the optimization. So, yes, that is experimentation. Yes, you start the process off without a, a defined outcome. But on the excluded list of activities, Marketing is excluded. Probably number one on the list. Number one on the list. So individuals will then try and constitute all of that and they, they might build that into, well, what they're doing is at the, the top end of town in the project, they're building an algorithm that uses all these experiments to be able to do X. And at the end of the day, I think that argument has been used to death I think that the Oz industry team and, and the HCO and others are probably quite sick of, of hearing people use even that word algorithm because it's like a black box that people think, you know. But those types of things, you have to make sure that whatever it is that you're doing isn't excluded from the actual uh, core activities list. I'll give you an example in maybe something that's a, a different channel. So let's say we're trying to grow... Uh, a new type of mango. Mango. Well, let, let's use rice. Okay. So I recently heard of a, a company that's growing rice without water. Now that project from inception, you know, is, is a research and development project. It's probably run by the CIRA or whoever it may be. But so the project as a whole, however, does not constitute a research and development tax budget because growing rice can be done. So there is certain components. So how to, within the project, actually put rice inside a particular substrate, whether it be soil, air, whatever it may be, and then allow the uh, roots of the rice, grass, or whatever it may be, to get the nutrients that they need to be able to survive. So that piece is a core activity. Then there will be how to, sub, how to sustain all of those rice plants in that substratum for a period of time. That, that can be a core activity. How to, so typically a project is broken down by a, a range of different core activities that together themselves make up the, the bulk of an application. But too often we see people that believe that their entire project is uh, a research and development tax project, and the, that unfortunately is not the case a lot of the time. But I'm surprised that the example you just mentioned doesn't qualify as core activity for the entire 
project because growing rice without water is innovative from, from start to end. Look, you could probably, you know, on that example, you could probably create an argument that uh, the entire project itself was an R&D activity. And in However, that case, everything would be eligible for the R&D tax incentive, the secretary, the, um, the communications manager or, or whatever. That's right. But I think from a, a tax perspective, because we're dealing with regula regulatory Australian agencies, our view would be to break the... Pro now, if the entire project was... Uh, an eligible activity. You you could not go onto the application and say, we're trying to grow rice without water and then list, because they ask you to drill into a lot of detail. They want to know what the hypothesis is. How So the hypothesis there would be, how do we grow rice without the use of water? They would then expect that you drill down into every single component of that project and mm -hmm. they want to see the technical innovation that's happening here. And to break it down into several core activities. That's exactly right. So it would be difficult to apply for one core activity with a total cost of $5 million That's right. and not to break it further down. That's right. And that's what I'm getting at is that whilst the entire project, the bulk of the project may be claimable, um, you can't claim the marketing activities. You can't claim anything on the excluded, or in the excluded list. So... You have to break down each of the individual core activities and all the different hypotheses and all of the different uh, um, experiments that are going on within that project and really make those clear to be able to claim the, the incentive. And this example is probably at the extreme end of the scale. Mm. Most of the projects or most of the companies that approach you probably wouldn't qualify in its entirety for the R&D activity. They would just have one or two core activities that are part of many other activities. That's right. I mean, we turn away probably 95% of people that apply with us because there, there just isn't um, eligible R&D activities within there or what R&D they do have doesn't actually exceed the, the threshold of $20,000. Yes, because the $20,000 threshold applies only to the R&D activity expense. That's right. It doesn't apply to the entire operating expenses of the company. That's right. That's exactly right. And so it's when you look at most of the people that talk to us, a lot of the time there's we there's a lot of apps, a lot of technology, a lot of software development, a lot of startups. Now, within those businesses, there may well be um, a piece of R&D, but normally it's quite a small portion of the entire project itself. Who administers the R&D tax incentive? When you are applying for the R&D tax incentive, you have to first register your project with Oz Industry. So that is the component of when a, an accountant or a, an R&D tax advisor will say to you that we'll complete your application. So your application is the application to Oz Industry to register the project. Um, it's done through the Oz Industry website. It, it's quite uh, a comp. I mean, it's I shouldn't say it's complicated. It's it's technical. If you want to get it right, that's why I, I will obviously advocate that a technical R&D specialist does that, but you can do it yourself. You can self-submit. Um, Oz Industry basically review the project, make sure that they are you know, at least comfortable with the application, and then they will give you a, a code. That code is then utilized to add back your R&D schedules into your income tax return. So it's important to be careful that the 
you then have to do your income tax return. So the accountant then needs to submit the income tax return, add back the R&D into the income tax return, and then lodge both. And then at that point, it's lodged with the Australian Tax Office, and the Australian Tax Office then is responsible for actually administering the the, the refund itself. Mm -hmm. There are basically two components to the tax incentive. One is the 43.5% refundable tax offset, but then there's also a non-refundable tax offset, isn't there? That's right. That's only if your gross revenue, so your turnover, is over $20 million. So if your turnover is over $20 million as an entity, then you will actually only get a 38.5% non-refundable tax offset for all eligible activities. And that can be carried forward and used to, well, to offset future income over the future years. In terms of eligible expenses, what happens is if the business is a loss-making business, so that there's no profit sitting in there, then basically it is a 43.5% refundable tax offset against the expenses that the, the business has incurred. If they have expenses of $1 million, they would get $435,000 back. That's right, provided that the ACO doesn't capitalise any of the uh, technology or equipment that they are actually developing. Oh, I see, so it would include de depreciation. Can, yeah, that's right. So when somebody's building out a piece of technology that can then be capitalised into the business, there's, there is a little bit of a, um, call it a, an arbitrage, uh, between what the application goes in for and then because you can claim 100% of your expenses within R&D, you can't claim 100% of those expenses in your income tax return. And so whilst you might be able to claim 100% of those expenses for developing a new type of drone, well, let's run with the drone as the example, um, you won't be able, because you've expended that money on a particular capital asset, when you have your income tax return, you will actually only be able to claim a portion of that in the first year, and that will then depreciate over a, a period of one and two years. Oh, I see. So the R&D expenses don't necessarily match one-to-one -one the tax-deductible expenses. Exactly right. I see. So let's say of the one million expenses we have, mm -hmm. $500,000 actually went into the acquisition of an expensive piece of equipment. Mm -hmm. You could still claim those $500,000 as part of our R&D expense, yes. even though we couldn't tax deduct the entire 500. That's exactly right. So you'll find that sometimes you will submit your application and we, I mean, we'll be able to give you a very good indication of what you're going to get back because we'll be able to tell you this is what the depreciation schedules look like, this is how what's going to be capitalised, this is certain components. But it's largely, so when you ask me the question as to what do you get back, yeah, it's 43.5% if your business is in a loss-making position. Right? And you're not profitable. If you're profitable, then it, it ends up being 13.5% because you're going to pay 30% company tax or, sorry, I should say uh, 27.5% or whatever it is now, 28.5%. Let's just assume it's 30% so it's easier That's to right. calculate. Can you give me an example of how the tax offset works? Okay. So this is a, quite a complicated discussion, right? So let, So let's talk through this. So let's say at 43.5%, if you are in a loss-making position, it's really easy. You claim your expenses of a million dollars 
and you're going to get back 43.5%, so $435,000, and that will come through. Depending on capitalization of some expenses going into the income tax return, but plus or minus, it's 43.5%. Now, if you're in a profitable position, let's say that you're making a million dollars in as a taxable income. So typically, you would pay $300,000 in tax. Let's say you have an R&D claim and your total expenses are a million dollars. So what happens there is that in the income tax return under the reconciliation statement, what we'll actually do is we'll have to add back the million dollars in total R&D expenditure onto the million dollars worth of uh, taxable income. And then what that would mean is that you're actually going to pay $600,000 in tax. But as part of the R&D tax incentive, you're going to get back $435,000, which if you subtract $435,000 from $600,000, it actually means that you're going to end up paying a total tax of $165,000. What that means is that's 13.5% as an R&D tax rebate as opposed to 43.5%. Yeah, So you have to actually add back the R&D expenditure inside the income tax return as a component of, you have to add it onto the taxable income. And then you also have to go through and then add in the 43.5% within the calculation statement. Mm -hmm. So that means the company, instead of a tax bill of 300,000, it only pays 165,000, so it has a, a win of 135,000. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So no, it actually has a win of... No, it pays 165000 Yep. instead of 300000 That's right. So the win is 135000 that, That's exactly right. So it still nets off as a, as a benefit, and a million-dollar claim is quite big, but when you look at that, bringing that right down to some of the smaller claims, sometimes people get a little bit disheartened if they're in a profitable position when they expected that they were going to get back $100,000 and... Sorry, or $50,000, and they only get back... 5,000. Yeah, whatever it may be. So... Mm. It's um, it can be a bit complicated to explain mm. because most people probably Im expect forty three and a half percent of their expenses. That's right, and then don't realize that the expenses are actually being added to the taxable income, and that the actual economic benefit is actually closer to thirteen percent, not forty three and a half. That's exactly right, and there's a lot of R and D tax. Well, I shouldn't say a lot, but there are. Uh, a lot of individuals will go out and say, we'll do the R&D tax application for you and that will cost you X. But then they're going to draw you in with fees to do your income tax return and then there's all sorts of additional add-ons and add-ons and add-ons and they don't make it clear about how that actually adds back into the income tax return. It's really important that people that are claiming the R&D tax incentive understand that it basically is overall an offset of your tax for later years. You know, the government, you, know, you don't get a free drink from the Australian government, uh, you know, or very, 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 very rarely. So um, hopefully that was. Uh, yeah, so clear. It's, still, it's, still, it's still money and it's still, you know, cash in the pocket. It's just a lot less than it, than it sounds when you think of 43.5%. If you're in a profitable position, exactly yes. right. Yeah. You know. Of course, if, if you're in a lost position, then. That's right, and that's really the, the major incentive of the scheme is to help businesses that really aren't up and running yet to, to expend the money, to, to spend the money on 
developing their technology, developing their projects, developing that IP that's unique to Australia, and then to give them a little bit of a leg up so that they can get their business up and running, they can go to market, they can get themselves into a profitable position, and then it becomes less attractive as an option there, which is, I think is the exact perfect way of structuring the, the scheme. The people that really need this benefit because they're in a lost position. Are the people that are losing money trying to do this research. And a lot of businesses are. You know, a lot of businesses are really struggling to get their technology or their, their, their innovation to market. And I think if Australia is going to compete against Singapore that's providing all these different tax offsets and Malaysia that's providing a 10-year tax holiday for innovation and other areas of the world, this is a really attractive scheme for us to be able to incentivise innovation here. How do I qualify? Okay. So to qualify for the R&D tax incentive, number one, the criteria says you must be a company incorporated in Australia, not a trust, not a joint venture, not a partnership, a company. So many times we get through the process that individuals assess their eligibility and then all of a sudden it's a trust or there's some sort of a... Mm-hmm. So a proprietary limited... That's right. A proprietary limited company... Uh, it's a corporation that is an Australian resident for tax purposes or a foreign corporation that carries on R&D activities through a permanent establishment in Australia or a corporation acting as a trustee of a publicly traded trust. So the permanent establishment doesn't have to be run through a company in Australia. It can just be a, a true permanent establishment. That's right. As, That's long, exactly as, right. The, as long as the ultimate company is a company overseas. That's exactly right. Now, also, you also then need to consider that there are a number of other criteria. So the R&D must be undertaken on your own behalf. You cannot undertake R&D on behalf of your clients. So you must, A, bear the technical and financial risk of the project. B, be able to influence or control the conduct and direction of the R&D. And C, Either own or effectively or have effective ownership of the R&D results, including the right to exploit the results. Okay? So you've got to own the IP or at least control the IP or have effective ownership. Yeah? So if company A engages company B as a registered research provider, mm-hmm. then company A can claim the R&D tax incentive but not company B. Correct. And what is a registered research provider? Is that like a list, like you register for GST? Is that a list That's that exactly the ATO right. runs? That's exactly right. So there's a, a, a an accredited list of uh, research providers that register themselves and uh, the name escapes me of the organization. I think it's Oz Industry that you register yourself with. And at that point, you become a, a certified uh, research and development registered practitioner and you will... Um, get a, a number, and you can then promote that. Okay. And it means once you are that, you can no longer claim R&D because you have registered and said, yes, I will do research activities on behalf of somebody else who will pay me. No, that's not the case. So you will, may, you may well. So you, if you register as, a, as an R&D provider, 
then you won't claim any R&D on the client projects that you are undertaking R&D on behalf of. However, you could still do your own research and development and then claim that as yourself. Okay. Okay. So I think that's that's clear. You have to make sure that at the corporate level, the corporate structure fits the criteria, and then at the IP level and the ownership of the R&D and the control of the R&D, that that fits the criteria as well. I think you also need to be a profit-making company, so you can't be a charity, a deductible gift recipient. Exactly right. But if I am a charity, could I set up a separate company that then runs R&D? So, for example, if I'm a cancer charity, could I then set up a company and run research projects through that company and claim the R&D tax incentive? I don't think so because in that instance, the parent entity would be a not-for-profit. So the beneficial owner of the R&D would be the holding entity, which would be consolidated through. Number one, you must assess your entity's eligibility as a corporate entity. Then you must assess the control of the IP and the project itself. If you tick the boxes for both of those criteria, then you can move into looking at a second set of criteria, which looks at whether your activities themselves, as opposed to the entity, are eligible. Okay, so first we assess the entity, then we assess the activities. And how do we assess the activities? So I'm going to read a little bit of this verbatim because it's, it's quite interesting the way that it's ter- the, the terms that are used. But so under the uh, R&D tax incentive, the eligibility criteria are defined as follows. Um, you have core activities and you have supporting activities. The core activity is the actual technical research that's being undertaken, the innovation, okay? And then the supporting activities are those activities that are undertaken by the business in support of delivering those uh, um, core activities, yeah? So you might be working on a particular project to build a submersible car, And as a result, you're working on that activity and part of that means that you need to work out a way to be able to drain the air outside of the vehicle to just enough to leave enough for a human to breathe but at the same time uh, allow the car to sink. So being able to do that technical piece of R&D is a core activity. Being Lifting that car into hiring the crane to lift that car into the water to do the testing on that activity comes in as a supporting activity. So there's a lot of ancillary things. So there's management, there's admin, there's uh, market. No, sorry, not marketing, but there's a lot of different types of activities that are required to sit behind the ability to actually do the core activity. So let's read from the, the statement here. So the definition of a core activity, a core activity is an experimental activity whose outcome cannot be known or determined in advance on the basis of current knowledge, information or experience, but can only be determined by applying a systematic progression of work that, one, is based on principles of established science and, two, proceeds from hypothesis to experiment, observation and evaluation and leads to logical conclusions. Okay, so in the practical sense, what we talk about there, that, that, that that's quite the... the uh, regulatory way of saying this. 
we encourage clients to think about a high school science project. So when you start off with a high school science project, first you have to come up with a hypothesis. What am I doing here? Then you've got to work out a methodology and you write down that methodology. And then basically you have to action the experiment utilizing that methodology. You have to observe the experiment. You have to record the results. You then have to observe the, and if you're trying to get a particular outcome, you refine and refine and refine. So these are logical scientific principles. Okay. So these are the principles of established science, developing a hypothesis and moving through an experimental process. Um, proceeding from hypothesis to experiment. Okay, so we're going to say, how do I get a car to float underwater and let a person breathe at the same time? Okay, so let's experiment. We're going to put you, Heidi, in the car and we're going to put you underwater and, uh-oh, she never came back up. So, <laughs> no, but, okay, well, there's the first component of the experiment, right? But after three or four people, certainly we're going to work out that we're doing something wrong and we're going to get to a point where we then start to increase the airflow. And so we're experimenting here and we're actually observing those experiments, right? So then we're going to actually move into the observation and evaluation. <laughs> so at observation and evaluation, I pull the car up, Heidi's dead. Okay, this is not a... So we failed, okay? So we're going to have to go back to the drawing board and at that point... We're going to have to redesign the, the experimentation process to try and get a different outcome. And so you can see that we don't know that the outcome that we're trying to, we don't know that it can actually work at the beginning. And that is where it comes into the, you know, the outcome cannot be determined in advance on the basis of current knowledge. And that's a really interesting thing to try and work through when you're doing the ID tax incentive because you look at it and you say, could the outcome be determined using current knowledge? Well, let's apply that to a software development project. AI is a really interesting topic at the moment, and it's very topical for R&D. So if I'm building a neural network... AI is... Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. Right? So if I'm... If I'm building a neural network, which is a, a particular type of coding that it builds a network that then automatically learns yes. from itself. So has a neural network been developed before? And could somebody, if I went to MIT or QUT or any of the universities and got a neural network specialist, could they build the neural network? That I'm building. They could. So if you apply that to this test, then the outcome of building that neural network could have been determined in advance by somebody that had current knowledge of building neural networks. So just the fact that you're building a neural network does not mean that that's R&D. It might be new for you, but it's not new for the world, and it's certainly not new for Australia. So that's a test that you have to – often you have to look at, has this been done before? You know, and if it's been done or if there are experts in their field that could reasonably do that, then that's not new. And if you think about it at the macro level, for the Australian government, the Australian government is really trying to incentivize new technical innovation in Australia because innovation drives the, the economy. So 
they're not really that interested in funding people to redo things that other people have already done or that experts can do. Now, using that as an example, um, you could actually go and get the components of a neural network from somewhere else overseas and bring that to Australia and then redo it and change it a little bit. And then you could say that we've been we've developed this new neural network. Well, that's not R&D either. That's commercial innovation because you are basically rebadging or you know, reassembling components of something that is already commercially available. And so the difference between technical innovation and commercial innovation is a very clear difference. It's really easily understood, although it sounds complicated. It's really simple. Could somebody else in their field that's a specialist do what you're trying to do? If that the answer is no, then, okay, we're, we're moving forward into a core activity. Now, the second part is the actual core activity must be conducted for the purpose of acquiring new knowledge. Now, new knowledge here is defined as including knowledge or information concerning the creation of new or improved materials, products, devices, processes, or services. Further to the, this general principle, some activities are specifically excluded from qualifying as core activities. So, but let's talk about new knowledge. New knowledge is really, it, it says in there, so products, devices, processes, or services. So then a lot of people come to us and say, I'm building this new hearing aid. We say, great. And they say, well, that's an R&D project. No, hearing aids already exist. So tell us what the technical challenge is that you're trying to solve. What are you doing better than Cochlear? What are you doing? So it's is it new knowledge or is it existing knowledge rebadged a different way for a commercial application? And that comes back into the, is it commercial innovation versus technical? What activities are specifically excluded from core activities? Okay, so look, there's a whole range of activities that the the scheme excludes, and you know, again, I'm going to read from the list here. But specifically, market research, market testing, market development, sales promotion, including consumer surveys, because. That, whilst it is an experiment and you're experimenting on a population, it, it, it's clearly excluded. So prospecting, exploring or drilling for minerals or petroleum for the purposes of one or more of the following, discovering deposits, determining more precisely the location of deposits or the size and quality of deposits, management studies or efficiency surveys, research in social sciences, arts or humanities, commercial, legal, and administrative aspects of patenting, licensing, or other activities. Okay, so anything you you do to protect the result of the R&D activity, you can't claim as R&D. You can claim as a supporting activity um, the actual patent costs itself for the application, but not the commercial uh, legal and administrative aspects of patenting. Mm -hmm. So not the lawyer. Yes. Um, the activities associated with complying for statutory requirements or standards, including maintaining national standards, calibrating uh, secondary standards, routine testing and analysis of materials, any activity relating to the reproduction of a commercial product or process 
by physical examination of an existing system or from plans, blueprints, detailed specifications or publicly available information. Deploying, modifying or customizing computer software for the dominant purpose of use by any of the following entities for their internal administration, including the entity or the developer for which the software is developed, the entity connected with the developer, an affiliate of the developer, or an entity of which the developer is an affiliate. Mm -hmm. So if I develop software for internal use, mm -hmm. then I can't claim that. No. Unless I have the plan to then commercialize it. Exactly right. So it's because it, it, it's about incentivizing research and development into innovation that is then going to become a profitable business. So we've covered the core activities. Yes. You also mentioned supporting activities. Yes. So supporting our activities are basically activities that are directly related to the core activities. So if they're undertaken for the purpose of normal operational reasons, then they only remain eligible when the dominant purpose is for conducting them to support the R&D activities. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the crane before with the submergible car. That's right. So if we look at developing a particular type of rice that doesn't go with water, then associated supporting activities with that may be getting to and from the research sites. Catering at the research site? Potentially catering. I, I, I don't know that I would put catering in at the research sites, okay. but, but certainly activities that are required to undertake that R&D. So going and getting the particular formulas the development of the hypothesis, the time of your staff to actually work on the project, the... The truck driver to bring the instruments to that's the right. research site. Exactly right. So anything associated with the actual core activity is can be claimed as an, a, a supporting activity within reason. You know, you can't then say that you wanted to have a hot air balloon filming the project from above and so as a result you needed to import the hot air balloon from overseas and hot air balloon is likely to be deemed um, uneligible. But do you see what I mean? So you yes. can't, it's it's things that are core to the project. What about um, expenses that are incurred overseas? That's a, and a, a really good point and that's probably one of the, the most important points that we could touch on today. Expenses that are incurred overseas. You have to get an, what's called an advanced overseas finding. So many people come to us and say, we've done all this amazing research and development in the USA. And then we say to them, well, then your, your it's expenses, it, it's too late. Now, there are some arguments saying that you can claim a component, like a small component of the overseas expenditure. You know, our, our approach is quite conservative that we, we just would say, just exclude overseas expenditure. Uh, do you need to have pre-approval before the expenditure is actually incurred or do you just need pre-approval before you lodge the application? You need pre-approval before you lodge the application. Okay. So you would basically say, okay, last year, I so this year I've spent this much money. Like It's better practice to have the pre-approval before you start incurring the expenditure, of course. But you say, okay, we've spent all this money overseas. Uh, it might be because... You're developing the submersible vehicle and as a result, the only submersible vehicle engineer is the same engineer that built the submersible vehicle that James Cameron went to the bottom of the ocean. We have to have him because we're going down to that pressure. 
if that guy is not available in Australia, which he clearly is not, or maybe it was, you know, we, we, you, then you can get an advanced overseas finding to say that the research and development that is being undertaken overseas couldn't have been done here. Years ago, there were a number of different types of software languages that it was immeasurably difficult to find Australian developers that were coding in Ruby on Rails, yeah, Ruby on Rails. Python, these different types of things. Those days are gone. There is, There are major Ruby communities here. There are major Python communities. There are all sorts of different types of... So if Oz Industry or the ATO could reasonably go on to Seek or whatever website it may be and they could do a search and find people that are looking for work, right, or applications for that type of employee, um, they're here in Australia. So, and, and if they are a lot cheaper, obviously. So, for example, Ruby developers are a lot more expensive in Australia than in other parts of the world. That's right. That argument doesn't count. No. It's not justification for the fact that you have gone and engaged development overseas because really the money's going offshore. So it's not a benefit to the Australian economy and ultimately also you need to make sure that the R&D activities are undertaken here, right? So you need to make sure that all Paying of your... Australian wages. That's right. And, and it's... So there are a lot of companies that will try and simply set up an Australian entity that then send the work overseas. So you sort of pass through a an Australian proprietary limited company that's using overseas uh, project consultants and other things. Now, a lot of the time, you know, it may be difficult to pull through a, you might go to one of the big four accounting firms and look at the, the global network that they have. How could you demonstrate that the the work was done here and not in one of their, their cheaper cost centres? You probably can't, but yet when you start drilling down into the smaller um, organisations, it's 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 completely excluded. The, the work needs to be done here. The project needs to be undertaken here. And if you're just shipping your work through another entity to say that that's an Australian entity that's then engaging outsources, mm. it doesn't constitute and it doesn't qualify. What about if the core activities are undertaken in Australia but certain supporting um, activities are coming from overseas? So, for example, a, a virtual assistant sitting in the Philippines or a support a software developer who is sitting in Russia, is the bar less high for supporting activities that are done overseas if the core is in Australia? It's a long, it's a long bow, right? You, you, you're really pushing it there because, you know, a developer that's sitting overseas in Germany that's doing work as a supporting activity is not really, you're not going to have a developer working as a support activity. He'd be working on the core activity um, and it would be excluded. A admin person that's working in the Philippines is working on a project. Look, if, if, you would have to justify why you're using that individual and why they have such domain expertise over and above anybody here in Australia that it's absolutely mandatory that that person is a component part of the project. Mm -hmm. so, so, it's, so it's not enough that management and control, et cetera, of the project is sitting in Australia. No. It's pretty much... Yeah, and look, it used to be uh, a little bit more accepted that... Yeah, I think it has become more... More strict. That's stricter. right. I think the demand for the, the project has significantly increased. So there's a lot of demand for the project. I think the regulatory agencies have skilled up. They understand a lot more now around uh, what development is, what coding is, what algorithms are, what, what all of these things are. So 
the days of pulling the wool over the the regulator's eyes are gone, and I think that also there's been enough learnings from the regulators to be able to now put out position papers that are very specific and clear on what is in and what's out. So it's very clear if you go to the website as to what it is, but it, there's a lot of material to read. Look, if you look at the expenditure eligibility, which is assessed by the ATO, the R&D tax incentive isn't subject to an expenditure cap, but for any R&D expenditure over $100 million, companies will only be able to claim a tax offset at the company tax rate, which is basically, which basically means there is no additional R&D benefit. You basically don't bother. That's right. And, you know, I think that has also changed now in the recent changes to the R&D scheme, which came out uh, recently. I, I don't have the, the information in front of me, but I think they've even brought that down so that the uh, the total cap is, is less than that now. Mm-hmm. Um, most expenditure related to R&D is eligible, including salaries, overheads, contractor costs, feed stock, R&D plant depreciation, the amount of materials, all those types of things. But there are a number of things that are specifically excluded, which are things that are not necessary or not mandatory for you know, the activity, the activity itself. Mm-hmm. So you can't just go out and buy a camera from Canon that you know you wanted to have an SLR or whatever it may be and, oh, that was a part of it. Mm. You know, you, you got to be very careful. It, it has to be active, sorry, expenditure relating to the project that is mm-hmm. that is necessary. And the, um, the first steps, so the company has to be eligible, the activities have to tick the boxes, all that is assessed by us industry, but whether the expenditure then qualifies or not, that is assessed by ATO. Although I shouldn't say assessed because the whole thing is actually self-assessed, but the expenditure falls into the domain of the ATO, whereas the question of whether um, you can register and whether the activities tick the boxes, that is that falls into the domain of the industry. That's right. Look, one thing to be conscious of is it is a self-assessment process. So you will submit your application and provided that the core activities are eligible core activities and that the company is an eligible company, Oz Industry will assess that and then they will basically approve your application into the scheme and then you get your code. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start looking at what the expenditure is and those types of things, that is assessed by Ausin, uh, sorry, by the ATO when you submit your income tax return and, and your documentation. And ultimately, but you, you have to understand that I, they, they're getting thousands upon thousands of these applications, so they're not drilling down into the detail of every single application. They are then able to go back and review any application for a period of up to five years. So if you look at your R&D tax incentive application, it, it really comes down to documentation. You must have the documentation on file. You must document your experimental activities And you must keep all of this documentation for a period of up to five years because year five, the ATO could decide that, or Oz Industry could decide that they are going to come out and have a look at your application because you know what, probably something doesn't make sense. Something doesn't make sense here, and they do do a, a substantial amount of audits every year. And when they go out to see individuals, a lot of the time it's confusion or it's you know. Because it is a self-assessment program, a lot of people submit these applications without having a specialist advisor, and you know it can it can end up bad. You can end up having to pay back all that money, 
you know, in the worst case scenario, which is uh, it's not a good result. So documenting, you know, for software development, documenting what they call epics and, you know, the, the work throughs with inside your project management tools and the discussions and all of those is keeping all that documentation is really, really important. Documenting the hours that people spend if you're claiming, you know, supporting activities for staff, overheads, contractor costs, you know, you, you've got to keep these invoices and, and actually attach them to a project file for this because when the ATO asks a question or when Oz Industry asks a question, you have to be able to reproduce this information. But is it possible to see a certain pattern in the way companies are selected for audit? Is it, particular, is it in particular high claims or, or companies that don't get into a, a profitable situation after five years? Um, is it possible to kind of pinpoint? Look, I think there's a number of major triggers. I think it's a risk-based assessment that the, the regulators do looking at a range of things. So is your core activity well-defined? And does it clearly meet the eligibility criteria? So if you assess and meet the criteria, that's the first thing. It, that, that's binary, right? You either do or you don't. So if you do, great. If you don't, it's very likely that they're going to either reject the application or you're, you're going to get audited. So they, they do read the application to register. Us Industry reads the application yes. to register and has yep. a look at the core activities to that's see right. whether that makes sense on paper. That's right. But then they will come up for review later on in, in, in subsequent years. And when they go through and they do a more detailed review, they're going to look at, okay, let's have a look at this activity and let's have a look at the, the timing. And does this exist? Does this, you know, do they drill down into a bit more? And so they're going to, to really try and analyze whether or not that is technical R&D, first and foremost. Number two, I think if you try to claim your entire project, then you are going to be on the hit list. They're going to come and say to you, the entire project is not R&D. So just scrap that concept, right? Projects are not R&D. Unless you're working for a biomedical company that's trying to develop a new cancer treatment that ultimately the entire project is. However, it's still... Within the hypothesis, there are a range of different supporting activities and core activities. Mm. So, well, you try to claim the whole project, that's a, that's a big no-no, and that, you know, that, that will get audited. Um, then again, where the expenses are just outright excessive. So, all of a sudden, you're trying to uh, build a, you know, a particular type of algorithm that you know, or a research tool within an application for a mobile phone that costs you $30 million. This seems like a bit of an outlier. So they're going to have a look at that. So it's, it's really having a look at making sure that everything is and appears to be in order. Um, then also overseas applications. So when you're, you're trying to apply for an advanced overseas finding, you're actually applying for a tax ruling that is binding. So they're going to look very closely at any advanced overseas finding. And at that point, you're, it's very likely that they're going to come and sit down and talk to you about why this is. Mm. So, that, you know, yes, there are patterns that I think um, are 
more likely to be audited than others? Do we see particular patterns that the agency is or the regulators are, are following? Look, this last year, I think there was a, a, a pretty solid look at software because everyone was just, everyone that was building a website was claiming, trying to claim. And I think it was uh, the ability for the agency to say, look, guys, there needs to be a bit more education here. But I think that's, that's done now. And I think people clearly understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, in biotech and other areas, there, there will be always a particular focus. And it's also where the regulators want to get a, some case law. They want to get position papers out. They want to be able to go out. They want to talk to people. And they are very reasonable. Mm. They will come out. They will talk to you. And they will explain, look, this is why we don't think that this is R&D. And maybe, you know, you should adjust your amendment like this or you should you should change this. So it's, you know, And it's often worthwhile talking to, to the regulators if you're unclear. Mm. The ATO incurs a big credit risk. Because especially when the company is in a lost position, the company might no longer be there by the time they get around to to audit it. Yeah, and it's you know. And I'm also surprised that there hasn't been more phoenix activity. You know, people who come in, claim, and then are gone after a year or two years. I think that the you know you see in the papers, those types of activities are, are brought very quickly into line, because. Anything associated with it, that, that, that's tax fraud, that's, that's uh, tax avoid, that's, there are so many uh, legal ramifications associated with that, that um, for the listeners, if you live in Australia, one of the individual organisations not to get on the wrong side of is the Australian Tax Office. So I don't think that um, there's as much Phoenix activity as in other sectors because if you're pulled up on it, then it, it's it's prison time and it's it's a serious offence. So, um, you know, but you're right. The the ATO does accept you know a lot of credit risk associated with the program. But I think the benefits for the sector and for the innovation economy and now for the startup economy and for Australia to be successful in at a world scale, we need this program. Startups and early stage companies, as well as large companies, need the support associated that, that this project provides. And we're even starting to see overseas companies now moving their R&D onshore to basically take advantage of this, which that's fantastic for our economy. So how does the timing work? I think it's 10 months after year end. So if yes. you have the 30th of June year end, mm-hmm. it's the 30th of April that the application must have been lodged. Yes. And registration also must have taken place by that stage. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. And the same deadline also for overseas, advanced overseas applications. I think that is a month or two months earlier, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it's February. Yeah, February. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are common mistakes you see or common misconceptions? Look, the biggest one is that an entire project can be claimed as R&D. It just is not the case. Um, the second is that uh, the analysis or optimization of particular types of digital activities can constitute experimentation. Yeah, it's experimentation, but it's stricken off the, the rules because it's basically covered under the the non-eligible criteria. Number three, it is that you can engage overseas consultants through an Australian entity. 
that is a proprietary limited entity. So you can engage KPMG who might use experts from overseas. That's or, right. Or, or and because you've engaged KPMG or, uh, or whoever it may be, because you've engaged that organization, so it might be a, a development company. So you might engage developer A, proprietary limited, who then go and engage um, three offshore companies to do the work. So effectively, you're just passing through uh, an Australian entity to do overseas uh, technical development. Mm -hmm. Again, that is not eligible. But you might not know. You might engage development company A, not knowing that they have a subsidiary in Kathmandu. Yeah, and, and that is something that it's important to, as an organization, to disclose the fact that you are proposing to claim the R&D tax incentive and it is important that the, the work is done onshore. Mm. You know, I mean, if you were to do your due diligence on the contractor that you're working with and to, to ask those types of questions, I think it will become pretty apparent that they are using offshore teams. And I mean, if they're using one offshore VA as an organisation, which many people do now, and the, the bulk of their workforce is here in Australia, that's a different story. But it's what I'm talking about is almost like the Phoenix where they're setting up Australian entities purely to get around the issue of the overseas uh, findings. So that's a, a key challenge and, and a key issue that we see a lot and we, we just turn people away and say, sorry. Um, another is that they've gone through the process of completing the application themselves and it's been rejected. As you can probably tell from our discussion and, and, and from your own experience, it's not as simple as it seems. There are first the eligibility criteria for the entity. There's the ownership and governance structure over the top of the research itself. There is the eligibility classification criteria for the core activities. There is the eligibility criteria for the supporting activities. There is the uh, stricken non-eligible um, list of activities. And then there are a range of different in like sort of more specific components to each one of those, which says systemized progression of work, uh, could not know the outcome before you started, has it been done? So I think that a lot of people get a little bit upset when they submit an application, and it is a lot of work, and then they get it rejected and they come and they say, this, this has been rejected, and we'll do a review and say, well, look, this is why. So... This is where we do the little plug and say, you know, it's, it's good for you to use consultants because consultants will get the, the project through for you. Or they could have told you at the start that it's no. That's right. Or that this is exactly right. We could simply, and as I said, 95% of the, the people that, that come through the doors don't have eligible criteria. And there's a lot of individual consultants out there that will push things through and push the limits. But, you know, our view is, at the end of the day, you get to year three or four and that company then gets a $200,000 bill and that will sink the company. So it's better to err on the side of caution than it is to try and inflate the, the claim for whatever reason. Um, do, you get, do you get involved a lot in audits? Look, we, we get involved a lot. We, so no, we don't have um, – Many audits through our firm. So you don't have companies who come to you because they are audited and hence need your help? We, we do get a lot of tax 
accountants and tax agents that come to us that may or may not have submitted an application and then they are responsible for the audit because they've done it incorrectly. On behalf of their clients. On behalf of their clients. And we advise uh, a lot on on that. And again, a lot of the time we sort of say, you know, you've either added back the uh, R&D schedules incorrectly in the income tax return or this has happened or that. So we, we do do a lot of advising. Um, but... We, you know, and if there is an audit, then if, if it's one of our clients, and we would certainly be involved, but uh, it's it's not something that we offer as a service, you know, externally. I actually um, distracted you. You were going through the typical mistakes, mm. and I think you got to number four or five. Were there any more? Look, I think the the final one is that if you spend X amount of money even though you're a profitable business, people still think that they're going to get 43.5% of their money back. It's not the case. You have to add back the R&D expenditure onto the taxable income. So as we discussed before, there is a massive letdown for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of people come to us after they've used another consultant and say, they told us we we're going to get 43.5% and... Mm. This is what we got. And it can cause a big problem because cash flow forecasts might have been based on exactly getting right. 43.5% of any cost back. So we can afford another developer because we will That's get exactly half of right. it back and then suddenly it's only 13%. That's right. So you have to, number one, watch out for the fact that if you're in a profitable position, just know that it's going to be added back and ask your advisor that. The second one to that is basically where you you go through the process and you don't realize that they're going to capitalize uh, expenditure on hard assets and or other things that... Capital assets. That capital assets, exactly right. So people sort of miss that. So when you, you have capital assets that then roll over into the income tax return, albeit that you can claim 100% of the expenditure on your R&D, you can't in your income tax return. So people sort of then get their a smaller rebate and say, oh, well, that's not what... But you then get the depreciation the following year and the following year. And so it does net off, but sometimes it's a little bit of a, mm, and a pinch. Affects the cash flow. That's right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, you know, I think that sort of covers off the, the major issues. The other is that you can just sneak it through and you're never going to get audited. That's not the case. Just expect that it's not if, it's when. Yeah. We, we're very conservative, right? So we, we, we have certainly had clients come to us that have uh, that have been in all sorts of problems that have sub- either submitted or had someone else submit and then, you know, ended up being assessed, audited, owing money, these types of things. And so I think it's, it's important that you you go and assess the do it right at the start the, the credibility of the people that are doing the work for you and make sure that they are a registered tax agent make sure that they you know oh, well they don't have to be a registered tax agent but make sure that they know what they're doing. they know what they're doing right so our guys are all um, accredited accountants and, and it's it's important because they have to understand the tax implications of this it's not as simple as just claiming the R&D a lot of people just claim the R&D and they don't do the income tax side. Mm. That's, you know. It's it's probably a unique combination of skills. 
you need to have a good tax and accounting background, but at the same time, you need to have a good tech understanding of the R&D activities. That's exactly right. And when you start looking and drilling down into biotech or agricultural tech or, you know, aerospace and rocket AI, AI these types of things, you really do have to have, uh, you know, subject experts to be able to delineate, you know, how does a, your, your average accountant, how can you expect them to know whether or not your jet propulsion rocket system has already been done? It, it's a technical application. It's not as simple as it seems. So for a lot of individuals, rather than self-assessing, sometimes it's a lot easier just to go and find a, an R&D tax professional that is then able to, to assist you up front. And even if they only do it for the first year, at least then you know and you get expert advice on A, whether your company is eligible, B, whether the ownership and governance structure is good, the core activities, the supporting activities and all these things. And describe it the right way, hit the keywords. That's right, help you understand how the, how the language needs to flow and how, mm. what level of detail that the application needs mm. to substantiate to be able to, to, sorry, to contain, to be able to substantiate mm. a claim. And knowing what Aus industry is looking for. That's right. The, the premise of our business is basically to work with uh, companies to help them get through that process. Uh, we have registered tax agents that are doing the applications. We are very happy to work with uh, the early stage and or late stage companies on A, understanding what is and what's not R&D. B, how to actually put the, the strategy together for the R&D program itself and then guiding you all the way through the process from inception to completion. So how do you get your money back? How do you submit your application? Dealing with the Australian tax office, adding it back into the income tax return, all of those things. So there's, there's a range of ways that people charge to do these applications. It's either a percentage of the claim, but I think the industry has kind of taken a position whereby if you're charging a percentage of the claim, then there's a kind of a conflict of interest that says it's in the interest of the advisor to inflate the claim in order to increase their fees. So as a result of that, we have a fixed fee. It's negotiated based on a transfer, depending on the size of the expenditure. Is that common nowadays in the industry to charge look, a fixed fee for R&D tax? Yeah. I, I, look, I think most people are, are charging a fixed fee now. Um, there's still a lot of agencies that are charging a percentage. And you know what? I'm not saying that a percentage is wrong. I'm just saying that we've sort There's of taken the opinion that there is a little conflict of interest there. So it should work out at around, I'd say, between 5 and 10% of, of the, the claim. Sometimes a little bit more if there's a lot of work associated with the consultant having to drill into what are these 4,000 activities and site visits and having to, you know. Mm -hmm. But it's it should really be... Um, ultimately paid out of the uh, tax incentive the tax incentive itself. So, I mean, that's the way that we charge. There are a number of firms that say, look, here's a minimum fee, you've got to pay it up front. The way we do it is, look, come and see us. We'll analyse your business and tell you whether or not you've got an eligible claim. We'll do that for nothing. If you've got an eligible claim, we'll tell you what our fixed fee would be. And at that point, if we do the work, we'll do the work, we'll lodge the application, we'll then help you add back into your income tax returns. We'll do the whole piece of work. And if you get a rebate, then we will charge you 
uh, the fixed fee based out of that rebate. So it's effectively, th there's no risk to the business. They don't have to pay you unless... They... Unless, of course, they get money oh, back. okay. So if they then have uh, outstanding tax liabilities and other things, we come to an agreement that they will pay us. But it's, it's like the, in the law firm, it's kind of a no-win, no-fee process. But more than anything else, we just encourage you to come and ask us before you submit because we just don't like seeing people getting to the point where they've gone and lodged themselves. And it's very time-consuming. It, it is. It is It is immeasurably time-consuming. And then you get rejected and you're already on the back foot. Yeah, so look, I think that as we go through, so number one, um, what is the R&D tax incentive? It's, it's an incentive governed and regulated by Aussie Industry and the ATO. It's designed for Australian businesses to be able to develop new technical innovations and doing technical research and development and the government assists them. They can get up to 43.5% in the dollar back on eligible expenses. To, to apply, you actually have to lodge an application with those industry and then it goes through to the ATO with your income tax return. And you have to lodge before April. You have to lodge before, before April. Before 30th of April. That's right. You have to go through the checklist and make sure that your governance structure is correct, that your uh, entity and corporate structure is correct, that you have got the right types of activities, your supporting activities are credible, that the process proceeds from using scientific principles, from a systematic progression of work and all of these things, and you basically have to keep the documentation correct. For five years. For five, at least five years, and for the ATO it's, it's seven years. So you you must um yeah I, I think that as a as a wrap is kind of a good overview of the the r d tax incentive um you know there are a lot of other grants and people get a little bit confused there but it, it's quite simple there's a lot of material online about the r d tax incentive so i i sort of urge everybody to to have a read um re-listen to this podcast i think you've asked some amazing questions and uh, then, you know, you can dive into other websites, the, the government website as well. Welcome back. So the R&D tax incentive is 43.5% of qualifying R&D expenses. That sounds like a lot. It sounds like the incentive will cover almost half of any R&D. But it doesn't, as Kevin correctly points out. The actual tax offset is only around 13%, depend depending on the relevant corporate tax rate. And that is because the R&D expenses are added back to taxable income. In the next episode, episode 35, Patrick Heang of Arga Lawyers will talk about the small business CGT concessions. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.